Business schools are ideally placed to be the nexus between government, business, and civil society in shaping a collective response to our most critical challenges. What is clear is this. If we just improve access to what already exists, we are not doing enough. We are not doing our jobs. The ways in which we collaborate, do, and teach must change if we are to promote peace and diplomacy, advocate for globalization, and respond to climate change. As leaders in business education, this is not only our responsibility, but a task fully within our abilities to lead. This is at the heart of GBSN Beyond, a unique international forum designed to facilitate thinking beyond one institution, instead focused on developing collaborative solutions and more robust and resilient systems. Join us this November 7th through 9th as we confront these challenges together in person in the Netherlands and online. For more info and to register, visit gbsn.org forward slash beyond. Welcome to the Global Business School Network podcast. I'm Rob Vember. This is episode two in our innovation series with Corn Ferry, the jobs that don't yet exist. The task of universities and business schools is, after all, to prepare graduates for the jobs that do not yet exist. These jobs of the future are being created right now by leading businesses worldwide. The following conversation, moderated by GBSN CEO Dan Leclerc, is all about urban air mobility. This is the second session of a series of sessions that at the Global Business School Network, we felt was important to convene. And I'll talk about our partner, Corn Ferry, in just a minute. I'm Dan LeClaire. I'm CEO of the Global Business School Network, which is a, a group of about 135 business schools in more than 50 countries focused on uh, building management education capacity in and for the developing world. And our emphasis is not just on um, access to management education, but access to the right kind of management education and providing learners with opportunities that uh, they didn't have um, uh, before. So for us, when we think about this series, this webinar series, the driver is that um, many business schools claim that their role is to prepare students for jobs that don't yet exist. And the idea is that the environment is changing so quickly and so unpredictably that when we think about the kinds of education that we provide, we need to think about preparing students for jobs that we don't quite yet know about. So in conversations with Corn Ferry, and I'll introduce Grace Chu uh, in particular, we thought what better way to help not only students at GBSN schools, but also faculty at GBSN schools to understand what these might look like, what better way than to talk to the people who are actually creating those jobs of the future. So uh, again, welcome to this uh, session two of the series. And our partner, Global Powerhouse in Talent Consulting for many, many years, Corn Ferry, and in particular, Grace Chu, 
who I met originally in Singapore earlier in her career, who went on to work with Corn Ferry. Together, we've created this series for your benefit. Uh, so Grace Chu is Principal, Regional Account Lead, and Program Director at Corn Ferry, where she focuses on building corporate development and talent management programs for boards and executive committees. These, this work involves the development of next practices, sustainable value creation, and innovation management. And that innovation in particular, I think the driver for her and I working together to develop this series. She works with senior management on uh, external su succession planning, talent strategy, and change management. And across sectors, she's worked with in, in industrial sector, technology, healthcare, government, and work with C-level uh, positions that shape the future of mobility and software and new energy. As I mentioned, we met when she was uh, working previously supporting uh, government initiatives on regional growth. She's fluent in English, Spanish, Mandarin, Malay, and does well also in French, if I understand things, uh, Grace. So we're, we're happy to be working with Grace. She's going to facilitate the session this morning and introduce our main guest, Asina. Uh, so Grace, it's all, it's all yours. Thank you and welcome. Thank you so much, Dan, for the kind introduction and a pleasure to meet everyone who's joined us today. So we'd love to go straight into the introduction of Asina and thank you so much, Asina, for joining us. Asina is the CEO of Resnove Group, a consulting company that helps businesses grow, obtain venture financing, pivot and expand globally. Resnove in Latin actually stands for the start of something new or innovation. Asina was previously also the CEO of Institute, an unmanned aviation company, and she was an executive of companies including Boeing, Adidas, Visa, and Anderson Consulting. Asina has spent 25 years helping both startups and multinational global business achieve significant revenue and profitability growth. She's very well versed in commercial and defense markets and has worked across a range of industries from high tech to aerospace, to media, oil and gas, finance, and even sports. Asina also is a friend of the House of Corn Ferry. She's a well-respected executive and a superstar leader in both the startup and multinational corporation world. We invited her today to share about the unmanned industry and to join our discussion about jobs of the future and skills that students should equip themselves with to be successful in the future workforce. Asina, thank you again so much for joining us today. And let's start the discussion with uh, telling us more about the unmanned industry. What is it and what are the communities that it serves? Thank you, Grace. Thanks for having me and thanks for that kind introduction. Uh, and uh, to everybody around the globe, I think we're all around the globe. Uh, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, depending on what time zone you're in. Yeah, I've uh, spent a lot of time in unmanned industry the last uh, 15 or so years of my life. And, you know, the unmanned uh, industry is basically unmanned area vehicles or ground vehicles or underwater. I was dealing with the aerial vehicles, as and many of you know them as drones. And they're basically remotely piloted air vehicles. They, that means they have a pilot who is controlling it from the ground. And uh, in the future, going forward, we'll see some advancement and what we call the true autonomy of these aircrafts, which is not just autonomous takeoff and landing, but also sense the ability of these aircrafts to sense and avoid other obstacles and even autonomously change their behavior based on the external environment, threats, or mission parameters. 
You know, so uh, the slide that you see, these are different types of air vehicle, unmanned vehicles or UAVs as we call them. The ones that are currently being used are here on the left side. And then there are some future ones for future uses that probably you most hear about, which are kind of the exciting uses. And we'll talk about those in just a second. So um, here on the left, we have two rows of different kinds of vehicles from small hobby grade vehicles like DJIs, for example, that some of you might have that are used for kind of uh, commercial applications and, and, and creating videos and shooting pictures. They're called tier ones UAV because they're very small and they are usually quadcopters or hand launchable airplanes. To the medium size, which is the company I've worked for, that's an integrator platform for a company called In-Situ, which was a tier two, tier three type vehicle. And then, of course, the third one that you've probably seen in many Hollywood movies, uh, large predators and, and reapers, the tier four and five type uh, vehicles based on their size. Below that, you know, you're seeing uh, different types of other air vehicles that we see some propagation of recently. Some of them include helicopters. Uh, we have hybrid VTOLs, which is a vertical takeoff um, and landing type vehicle, and then even something they call tail sitters. So all kinds of things out there. But the interesting thing right now, I mean, there's much talk about in this industry, but currently most of these outside of DJIs that are used kind of commercially and for hobby type purposes, most of these uh, air vehicles have military application. Missions that we called ISR type mission, which means intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, or, or for industries that are more like civil type industries, such as firefighting, border patrol, search and rescue, disaster relief, Basically, anywhere where the imagery or signal from these aircrafts is used to provide some type of situational awareness over some type of a dangerous terrain or area without having to put a pilot in danger. What we're going to you know, look for to do in future with these things more commercially, many, of, many are hoping that one day we're going to have you know, pizzas or beer or some packages delivered uh, or, or other type of cargo delivery, whether we're uh, moving, transporting passengers or, or packages. That's, that's basically the urban air mobility type things. So in urban cities and congested cities, the hope is that we're going to have these autonomous flying vehicles or cars of sort providing that kind of next level, next level of, of flight and future. And uh, there's many, many different types of, of drones that are being currently created for those applications specifically, but none of them are uh, flying like such at the moment. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sina, for shedding some light. Now, the question is, you know, what does the, do these unmanned vehicles solve? What, what is the problem? Well, usually the problem they're solving is some kind of, like I said, uh, you know, uh, for military in particular or for civil, it's some kind of a situational awareness. So we're observing something and providing a signal. It can be a radio signal, electrical signal, it can be a video, usually most often is video. And it gives us an ability to observe an area, let's say in firefighting. It's very dangerous for pilots to fly, especially uh, nobody flies at night for firefighting. So a lot of times they lose uh, the awareness of the situation of kind of how the fire has changed over the night. So we can put these types of vehicle in the air without endangering the pilot. 
and they can provide a video and survey the area flying around with this remotely piloted operator that can you know, provide the same imagery as the regular airplane. Uh, we usually kind of say that unmanned vehicles are for 3D type mission, dirty, dull, and dangerous missions. So, uh, so you know, where you kind of don't wanna put human in the danger. Uh, the, the rest, the autonomy really itself is just kind of more of a buzz. It just, uh, the autonomy just allows us not to put humans uh, in the cockpit in danger. Um, and then for future applications such as air taxis and things like that, you know, you kind of want this vehicle to fly on its own without having to have a trained pilot operate it. Wonderful, what a meaningful industry. Great, Sina, so you've worked at startups, you've worked at large companies across different industries. And uh, from what I understand, innovation has been the common thread across uh, you know, unmanned aerial vehicles, it's been finance, it's been across uh, sports, apparel, et cetera. So uh, what is the common thread that you see across companies to innovate and how do we create room for, for innovation? So, um, so <laughs> innovation is like this topic, I, you know, my company is all about innovation and disruption. Uh, Resnove means literally kind of revolutionary new things. And, you know, you can take them in good, good or kind of uh, maybe not so good aspects. But for me, it's this idea of disruption and innovation that every company needs to be thinking about constantly because innovation and disruption, it's almost like a circulatory system in your body. It's essential for survival. It, it, it's everywhere, it impacts all parts of our body, it's constantly renewed. So the same thing with kind of innovation and disruption in the companies, you have to have it, it's essential for survival. It constantly needs to be renewed and impacts all parts of the organization. So what I talk about is there's really many, many ways to innovate. You know, and, and here's an example, for example, let, let me talk about just uh, in situ because that company has been considered a great innovator of its time. Many think about just kind of innovating product itself, which we've done a lot of it. But what we started doing is also innovating the way in which product is used. So when you think traditionally of an airplane, they require runways. We've disrupted that by creating an aircraft that if it's autonomous, it doesn't have a pilot, you can basically launch it from a catapult uh, because we don't care about the Gs and recover it on something like a vertical rope suspended from some kind of a vertical structure. So you see here launch and recovery equipment for this aircraft that all of a sudden you didn't need a runway for. So now if we're talking about military application, people taking these vehicles into remote areas where they don't have the previously established infrastructure, it's a great way to kind of break into the industry in a whole new way, even with the established companies that had planes like Boeing, for example, and eventually Boeing ended up buying in situ because of you know, that particular element of innovation. The, 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 second in a, the second way to innovate in which we did innovate was in services, in operational models. So you would think, okay, we're an aircraft company, so let's sell some hardware. But we actually offered to military not hardware, but a service. And we called it a pixel by the hour, which meant that we are providing video by the hour. And you, you kind of ask, what are these things used for? Well, we realized that a lot of our military customers care about the image over a certain area. They didn't care where that image came from and what the, what the vehicle that delivered that image. So rather than having them buy planes, they bought the video. And that, that actually allowed us to tap into different funding sources with military that allow us to accelerate our procurement process and also accelerate our own product innovation, back to that product innovation, because 
because the customer didn't care about the vehicle itself. They cared about a video. We were able to then make numerous, like in one year we made over 50 to 60 different technological changes on the platform alone because you know, the customer just cared as long as the video is coming to me, we could have made uh, you know, all kinds of improvements in reliability on the aircraft, aircraft speed, weight, et cetera. You know, we see similar innovation right now, let's say modern you know, Tesla type things where a lot of uh, vehicle type improvements are pushed through software. So you can innovate much more quickly in terms of capability of the product without having to change the hardware and, and, and that is much easier for company to push to the consumer, also manage in terms of inventory operational costs and things like that. And then the final you know, innovation we had was in actual um, how the product was used. Originally, the platform was envisioned for things like weather monitoring in place or in situ in Latin, that's the name. Um, and that involved, hey, we can launch these things off of ships. So let's go help fishermen find schools of tuna. And little did, little did these you know, innovators uh, and original owners know that the product did so many other things except the first two things they thought they were going to do. We did all kinds of other mission except finding tuna or you know, measuring weather in situ. And so the third type of innovation is really this agility of the company to stay agile and innovate enough to be able to adopt to the changes um, in, in, the, in the customer market. So, I'm bringing these up because, you know, there's the innovation is so broad and I'm bringing these less common examples to kind of demonstrate that there's many different ways to innovate. I always say the entire company can innovate, every function can innovate and can disrupt and they should continuously disrupt themselves and stay open to new ideas. I always say um, good ideas are come from everywhere. We have to be open to great ideas. And because you never know where they can lead, you know, from tuna to military. Love that. That's excellent, Sina. Well, and it, I like the fact that you brought up agility because we know that smart growth leader is the one who outperforms the market, is one who is agile, is one who navigates the volatile and ever-changing world. Now, um, we see that you have evolved your career in a way that you have rotated across functions, you have rotated across industries. So you have seen a lot of the world. All right, and that may have provided you with that perspective to innovate, right? Because if you sit in a room where you have worked for 20 years, it's hard to look outside in. Tell us more about um, how did you evolve your career the way you did? And is cross-functional experience and cross-industry experience something you look out for when you hire? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, uh, we look for that. And my career happened to really evolve organically through mostly my network and personal curiosity. I'm sure all our callers uh, have a similar, similar kind of thing, you know, and not being somebody who shied away from challenges. So, um, you know, I, I, would, I would see an unmanned need or I would think of some kind of innovative idea and my managers will let me run with it. And then they would say, hey, can you do this something else for us? And, you know, I would always take those projects regardless on how they challenging or daunting they seemed because I always felt like early on in my career, hey, this is just another tool in my professional toolbox that I can, uh, I can, I can get in terms of my skills. So I worked in many industries and across all functions, uh, ultimately getting into the CEO position. But over years, what I really realized is that 
industries and markets have accelerated so much and there's been so many common challenges and cross-pollination of practices across industry the companies do appreciate those employees who have seen a variety of things and solve problems from a different perspective you know so if we if we for example look at the challenges of global companies today they have global supply chain challenges. They all want to do automation. They, they care about digitalization and new manufacturing methods. They care about diversity, uh, et cetera. So if you work on that type of project, and, and, and the interesting thing is you don't have to be functionally specific to work on those projects because these are cross-functional type of problems. Then in one industry, if you work on that type of project in one industry, another industry may recruit you to solve the same challenge for them. So that's how I was recruited to Adidas from Boeing, you know, sports and planes, what do they have in common? But they had the exact same kind of challenges and problems. And they were specifically in Adidas, they were specifically looking for somebody from outside of the industry, somebody who can think about it from a different perspective, but who have solved these types of problems in the past. So, um, so you know, so people are kind of trying to, to innovate by having that different perspective. And I sit on a number of boards similarly, and I just recently had this discussion where the leadership was looking for a uh, engineer who was familiar with uh, turbine, turbine engines, but who also ideally had some PM experience and also some experience setting up global supply chains. And so, you know, so, so people are looking more and more for what they call unicorn type of candidates, you know, and, uh, and don't get me wrong, you know, if you're, if you're very stan standardized in your career, if you're an, you know, can be an engineer, a recruiter, accounts, payroll specialist, or similar like that, you know, there's still, there's many jobs for you. But if, if companies have two candidates with the same set of functional skills, they will look and, and appreciate those who um, who have seen, you know, opportunities across many different industries and had maybe solved this in different types of environment. So, you know, if people want jobs in startup these days, um, I, you know, my recommendation is get those tools in your toolbox early on in the career and get as much exposure to these challenging projects and different projects as possible uh, in one industry. And then, and then you can branch from there into different industries. Wonderful. Well, that really resonates with me. Uh, you know, the work that uh, we do at Corn Ferry, we do a lot of searches for complex roles that require that unicorn that you mentioned, right? Uh, the person who comes from various backgrounds can look at problems from different ways, and yet is also an expert in the topic. So exactly. uh, we see that exactly in the industry, not just, uh, you know, in general management, but even in technology roles, as well as uh, commercial roles, right? As problems in the world, you know, as you move from this hardware to software solution selling, the kind of skill sets that people have, uh, have are, are changing. So with that, it's a good segue into skills, the topic about skills. What are the skills that business schools should continue to instill in their students that you need in the workplace? Well, first of all, I myself finished a business school and I thought that was, you know, that was, that was a great way to get exposed to, to many different new frameworks and ideas and thoughts. So, so great for students, you know, you have picked the right thing uh, to go after, but uh, you know, I, I understand and appreciate that business schools have a curriculum they need to go through and, and have a certain skills um, that they, you know, need to impart and uh, embark. What I, what I would suggest is way to do what I called uh, as many applied soft 
and hard skills as they relate to that curriculum. So what, what do I mean to that? I mean skills that are um, kind of team-based, project-based, cross-functional, and address the current business problems in the area. And how, what are those, some of those soft skills? So almost all work-related projects will be in teams. And, and most challenging one, to your point, will be those cross-functional. So, so whether we're developing hardware or software, offering a service, putting out a proposal, developing pricing, working with a supplier, it doesn't, doesn't matter. We work with teams and cross-functional teams. So the sooner the students master these soft skills that include team facilitating and team building, team leading, communications across functional teams, negotiation, communication and conflict resolution, communication across different types of personalities and ages, the sooner people get those soft skills, the better because they will deal with those every day in their work life. And then when we have those soft skills that apply to every project, you know, there is also some hard skills that are, that are not necessarily always thought in business schools, but they're kind of used every day in a business world. And those are things like program management, risk assessment, risk assessment and mitigation of risks, things like lean and sigma practices, uh, work breakdown structures approaches, setting, measuring, and assessing metrics, even skills like Excel, PowerPoint, presentations to executive leadership. All of those are skills that are not necessarily part of business school curriculum, but you kind of need them in everyday life. So, so for business schools and professors, you know, those professors that tend to collaborate with industry, I think do really well to have like businesses come up with a problem that is in the area that the, that the professor is uh, relating to. And then if there is a way, it's kind of like a capstone, but try to do not capstone just like maybe once at the end of semester or at the end of the year, but kind of every project that's being done, if there is a way to do these apply skill and embed those skills, such as working in teams, collaborating, providing feedback, having constructive disagreement and, you know, developing metrics. What is this, what did, what did, what did make this project successful? How do we know we're making progress, developing a project plan for a certain project? Those are some of the things, if there's a way to kind of fold that into the curriculum, I think it would be very, very helpful. Wonderful. Well, what is the best advice that a mentor of yours has given you about being successful at the workplace? <laughs> I was super lucky that I had my very first mentor and my very first job as an intern in a high-tech company where I was being an engineer. He was a very senior leader and the best advice he gave me, he said, look and observe what type of problems does the senior leadership of the company care about? Get yourself on that project and find a way to present some kind of a finding to them at the end of that project. And, and he goes, and he was happy. He said, I am happy to help you find that project once you assess kind of what are the problems area you observe and what are you interested in. And so he placed me on that project and I was immediately visible to, to the senior leadership. And, and that was fantastic. So he started me off. I was lucky to get him like right at the beginning of my career. And I apply that for the rest of my career. You know, I look at what are the most pressing problems and then I raise my hand. You know, I'm scared to raise my hand. I, you know, I am, I'm like, can I do this? But we find a way 
And if the leadership care about, about that project, if you do a great job and if you present to them something that will help their company, you know, I found that is the fastest way to kind of grow and excel in your career, regardless of what it is. Wonderful. That's great advice for students who are just at the start of their career. So with that, thank you so much, Asina, for sharing your insights, such a rich discussion. And we're doing very well on time. We would love to take some questions from the floor, and I'll hand the time over to you, Dan, to facilitate that. Thank you. Well, well thank you, Grace and Asina. That was wonderful. That was very interesting. And I hope you don't mind that I'll, I'll pose questions from the attendees, perhaps, uh, Grace, not only for Asina, but perhaps for you as well. I think that there are, uh, judging from the questions, um, some opportunities there. But I wanted to just continue just a little bit longer with the the mentor discussion that Grace you started with Asina and you know the idea that you had a mentor perhaps was accidental <laughs> early in your career but I'm wondering if you could give some advice about getting mentors yes. uh, early in your career and identifying those and getting them on board to help support you Yes, um, I love the topic of mentorship because I love being a mentor uh, because it has made such a, so thank you for asking that question. Uh, I'm very excited about the topic because it has helped me so much in my career. And I was lucky enough to have an internship experience where a person grabbed me under their wing and helped me out. Uh, in, you know, I, we've tried to do that in every company that I've worked since then, you know, have a very meaningful internship experience where we do assign mentors. But, you know, my experience has been uh, once you have a mentor, you never stop wanting to have a mentor. And so I've had mentors my entire life. I still have mentors. Some of them are now in their 80s and 90s, <laughs> but, you know, they have guided me through, through my career and I recommend everybody to find one. And the way I do it, it's maybe a little bit controversial because many companies do offer mentorship kind of pro program, kind of structured programs, you know, which if, if they do, great, uh, utilize them if you want to. But I like a much more organic approach to mentoring. You know, there's always somebody in the company that just smiles a little extra when they see you that just you know goes a little bit out of their way to say hi check in on you help you out on a project and you know if that person is senior to you and you like how they operate ask you know i would always approach them and ask them hey would you you know would you mind would you mind being my unofficial mentor somebody that i can just uh, bounce ideas off of from time to time and uh, 10 out of 10 times, they always agreed because, you know, because they've already um, expressed that little extra special interest in you. So for me, it's kind of observing and, uh, and finding that connection with somebody or, you know, if you admire, if, if people admire somebody, uh, somebody's approach to how they solve problems or tackle problems or present problems, you know, those are the people that I would pick and, and go for. And, uh, and for, you know, female members in the audience, you know, don't shy away from male mentors. You know, I highly recommend them. And also for, you know, the, the opposite, you know, maybe seek a different perspective because it does help sometimes that kind of cross-gender cross communication to get a perspective from perhaps 
person who might have some diversity element from you can be either, you know, a gender diversity or you know, professional diversity or a race or, you know, whatever kind of diversity, whatever maybe you're having challenges with or struggling to understand in terms of business place, maybe find a mentor in that particular area is my experience. I like all of what you said, but in particular, that last point about diversity. I, I think sometimes we, as learners, and we're all learners, we tend to gravitate towards the people that are like us, right? <laughs> when the reality is you want to be better in other areas, right? That you're maybe yeah. not as strong in. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, what a... I, I want to get to a, one of the questions uh, posed by the attendees, but since you brought it up, I, I, I can't help but ask a question about gender. You know, if, if somebody, if I were to tell somebody, I'm going to talk with leader that has experience as an engineer, that's been an entrepreneur in the technology space that works with the defense industry, I'm not convinced the first image that would come to mind is a woman. They would almost. <laughs> so I'm going to ask the question, you know, uh, in addition to what you just provided about mentoring, what other advice would you give to women based on your experience? And uh, I don't know the numbers, but what I suspect are largely do dominated by males still uh, in those types of industries. Yeah, it is. And all these industries are doing much, much better in diversifying. They have now teams focused on that, leadership focused on that. So they're doing better, but you're right. Uh, the ratios are still uh, not as good, especially as you get to a more and more senior role. There's a lot of studies that suggest it's okay kind of in the entry level position, but by the time to we get to the most senior executive type roles, you know, that 50-50% male to female becomes something like, you know, 80, I don't, I'm not exactly sure, but the numbers are really like 80, 20, 90, 10, sometimes even 95, 5, depending on the industry. Uh, and so, yeah, certainly I've been in one of those, you know, military, aviation, uh, engineering, you know, it's, it is very, uh, it is very male dominated. And what I, and I've done a lot of presentations to kind of female audiences and, and young, uh, young women professional kind of in their career. So if any of your students, you know, want to reach out to me, uh, feel free, you know, I, like I said, I love, you know, I love mentoring uh, young, new, new generations of leaders, but you know, what I would recommend to, to, to them is be yourself and don't be afraid. This is a little bit of a stereotype I, and I hate to stereotype about it, but it's somewhat true you know, women tend to look for promotion or for a project when they feel like they can do it and they're qualified enough to do it, where, you know, men typically, typically, not in all cases, you know, I don't like to serve, but, but you know, um, they, they tend to, uh, you know, be more up for the challenge and they say, hey, you know, I'll kind of figure it out as I go. If I waited till I was ready, I would never get on a different project or get promoted <laughs> because I was absolutely not ready for any of the jobs that I ever had or any projects that I ever had. There was always a little bit of that fear and a little bit of this imposter syndrome, like, can I do this? How, oh my God, I've never done this. How do I do this? Especially when you switch from you know, engineering to finance or you switch from you know, finance to supply chain you know, it's, it's, it's such a new world. You think you can never do it. If you're early in the career, there's always so much help 
that comes to you from so many parts of the organization if you're not afraid of ask and if you're not afraid to admit that you don't know something or if you're not afraid to ask for help. And so, so I would say, you know, you know, bring your authentic self, number one, uh, and I'll t- tell you something about that in just a second, because I think it's important, but, but to just finish this thought, the second part is, you know, accept that challenge before you're ready, stretch yourself on purpose. There is no mistakes early on in career. Later on, there are mistakes, you know, but early on, you can, you can kind of explore, you can learn, and every one of those projects becomes that one tool that, that you might need later in life, later in your professional career, when you're more senior, you know, it might help you with something in the future. So I've collected all these different tools, tools, tools in my toolbox to where now it's very hard to find a problem where I just kind of can't land on my feet. And that gives you this incredible confidence that, you know, that allows you to go search, search for new opportunities, new projects, new, new adventures. But the second part I do want to bring up is the importance of kind of being yourself. You know, I've had female bosses and female mentors and, and you know, sometimes, and they're all different, you know, something they need to be tough to be in the man's world, you know, kind of never show any emotion or weakness, something they need to be more agreeable, like, oh, let's have, you know, let's allow the team to bring up the idea. So it looks like it's theirs, not mine. You know, I've seen all kinds of different things of uh, women, you know, and I've been in this business for a long, long time. So, you know, this is early on in the days of women in the workforce. I'm dating myself a little bit, but, you know, they felt like they have to be something they're not to kind of fit in that world. And my advice is, you know, for any, any diversity candidate, this is not just, you know, females, but any diversity candidate, companies with diverse people, it's proven that they do 30, 40 plus percent better than those that don't have diversity. And so if you are not succeeding being yourself in one company, try in another company. Like don't change yourself because being your most authentic self is the most important thing. And that's how you're gonna be more successful. And there's so many companies out there that are now looking for diversity in their, in their, um, in, in their midst that uh, you will find the one where your authentic self will shine and will bring the value and you should be your authentic self because that is how you help those companies become 30%, 40% better uh, with their stocks, which has been proven. You know, if uh, companies that have, for example, just women in leadership, you know, not many studies have been done. New studies are not coming with diversity in leadership, but even just with women in leadership, they're doing, uh, you know, on an average about 30% better on NASDAQ than you know those who don't have female relationship. So fantastic figures I'm sure Grace knows all about. <laughs> Very well said, Athena. Well to add to that as well, right? So for women out there, don't shy away from opportunities. We had a few very challenging searches we did last year. Uh, one of, of which was a CTO, a chief technology officer for an automotive company. Now think about an automotive world where it's very male dominated. Now when I had reached out to this uh, lady who is an expert in this field. You know, she was very, very happy that I reached out. She put herself out there, right? She went for the opportunity. She said, yes, you know, everything that Asina said, she, she represented that, right? Like, yes, I can do this. It's a big challenge, but I'm going to step up to the opportunity. And in the end, she actually got hired as the chief technology officer, which was a win for everyone, for her, for us. And, uh, you know, for us, it's an equal opportunity kind of search. So if you can do the job, you can fit into the culture, 
whether you want the job, you are considered. And so um, you know, she was very grateful for that opportunity. Now, don't for women out there, don't shy away from opportunities and get yourself, get your name out there, create a great LinkedIn profile, be noticed, and take the calls when you're noticed. Well, thanks both Asina and Grace for that. I suspect we could continue that uh, discussion even further, but I want to make sure to get to a couple of questions that popped into the chat, not just into the uh, uh, Q&A. And Abdekani from uh, USIU in Kenya is um, interested in making a shift from the civil society, from NGO to the business sector. And given especially your, your cross sectoral experiences, Cena. I'm wondering, and, and Grace, you might want to chime in on this too, given your government experience, but I'm, I'm wondering if you could give Abdikina some advice. Grace, do you want to start? Because I feel like I've kind of talked a little bit about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm happy to start. So first of all, in the NGO sector, what are some of the skills that you have, right? Is it project management? Is it about business development? Is it about selling, right? Is it presentation? Is it marketing? A lot of NGOs need funding. That's a very important skill. And then delivering projects, right? Uh, and, and depending on what the NGO stands for, is it education, et cetera? So the first thing I would say is figure out what are some of the skill sets that you have that are similar to other industries, right? So maybe even consulting for social enterprises, right? Those are some very low hanging fruit. And then go for those roles that you think you can bring something to the company, right? That's a very good start. And when you want to apply for a job, you know, for us, it's especially the lower and more junior levels, it's about, oh, I liken it to throwing darts, right? The more darts you throw, you know, the higher chances are of hitting the bullseye, right? So put yourself out there, go for apply, keep applying till you get an opportunity to interview and you'll see where that brings you to. Yeah, and I noticed Abdekani said that he's a program manager, and it's, uh, you know, I, I just mentioned that as one of the critical high um, skills. Program managers are so sought after in the, in the business sector. You know, this is one of the, and I would even recommend it for students who don't get that in the business school, to go out there and consider getting their own, you know, PMP or, or at least getting some classes, online classes or some kind of a self-study course on how to be a program manager. You learn so many tools and skills to manage a project, to manage risks, to manage resources, to kind of drive and delegate authority over people over which you don't have authority. And you know, you, you, you learn how to deal with shortage of resources, shortage of budgets, which is kind of every day in the business world. You know, so, so, so some skills like that and going to business school is a perfect, perfect segue to switching any kind of career. I went from an engineering into, from after business school into consulting. So business school gives you, allows you this ability to pivot without anybody asking really any questions, uh, especially if you want to go to, you know, any business sector. Abdikani, you as a program manager, you're a hot commodity and don't be afraid that skill uh, works for NGO and it works for any industry. Wherever you go, you can use your skill set, and they'll be happy to have that skill set because there's not many program people who have certified program managers out there. Same with schedulers, data analysts, software, some kind of uh, software engineers that deal with automation, uh, digitalization, AI, cybersecurity. Uh, those are kind of the jobs of the future. 
that there is such a shortage of and demand of in the high-tech industry uh, that I've observed that you know you can't go wrong with any kind of those specialized skill sets. Thanks, Dave. We only have a few more minutes. I hope you don't mind <clears throat> just going a few more minutes, Asina and Grace, with uh, some additional questions. I suspect, uh, Asina, you've already begun to address Sahim's uh, question about the undergraduate versus master's level uh, education when you talked about pivoting, right? Yes. <laughs> Often people use the master <laughs> education as a way to pivot into different experiences. And, but I wonder if you might add something to his question and we'll get to Sally's question soon. I, I, I would just add one thing. And this is kind of interesting because I am engineer in heart. You know, when I talk about hard skills versus soft skills, I, I, hard skills, I'm thinking like very specific kind of functional type skills and software skills are more like, you know, emotional intelligence, presenting, negotiating, bargaining, uh, you know, those, those types of things. You know, school teaches you the skills you need to have in the job from the perspective of, of, of those kind of functional skills. For any student, whether a master or, or undergraduate, I'm going to tell you one, one thing that is an absolute must. And again, I was very fortunate early on in my career to do a lot of presentations because I come from a country where people were interested in kind of what was going on in that country at the time when I was very young. So I started doing a lot of presentations, but honing on those, honing those presentation skills especially when you're kind of more senior in, in a company, a master graduate coming at a higher level, written skills, communication skills, and presenting skills are exceptionally important, exceptionally important. You know, and there's going to be a day where you're going to, uh, every person in their career gets put in front of the executives to present on something. And what an opportunity that is, you know, talking about an important project to a senior team is the most best way to kind of push your career into something exciting uh, and new, but it's also could be at that moment that really shuts you down. So I'm just going to kind of, um, if you focus on innovation in your field and you have a great way to communicate what you want to do, the many, many doors open. <laughs> So, so, you know, if there's two things to know about is know how to present your great idea, next great idea, and you'll be very successful. I don't know, maybe I'm just boiling it down too low, but, but uh, I, I think that's a certain way of succeeding. Oh, thank, thanks for that. The, the questions keep rolling in. I, I need to say not just in the Q&A, but in the, in the uh, chat. I, I think we have time for one more, but um, before I get to that question, one just popped in from um, Sandhya, a doctoral student who asked something specifically about drones. And I don't know, uh, uh, Sina, if you yeah. would be willing to, uh, to answer yeah. that question quickly before we get to Sally's as a final question. Into consumer markets, yes. The biggest, the greatest impediment, so the most hype is about commercial application of drones. And today I will tell you with confidence that nobody's making money doing commercial type of activities with drones, which is crazy. Most of the, all of the, all of the current income is based out of military type of applications. Outside that, you know, somebody selling hardware for experimental type things. Nobody's yet providing what I call too many commercial services to where they can make, you know, uh, be a large company, a decent company. The biggest impediment is regulatory 
the you know the regulators are not sure how to put a pilotless drone into the national airspaces. What happens if you lose the comlink? What happens if you you know lose the vision, the whatever is providing you the vision and awareness of where you are? And a lot of these vehicles are still don't have the redundancy that is needed to you know for kind of commercial application when you're flying over a populated area. A lot of these drones currently are flying for military type of purposes, usually, you know, in remote areas over bases, kind of, uh, you know, around the bases where there's not much chances of hitting something. With, with commercial use, that is a very big impediment. And, and primarily, it's this autonomous behavior of an, of an aircraft. How do you sense and avoid objects like a pilot would? And then, um, you know, if you lose a link, how do you do it autonomously without having a pilot in the loop? And so uh, we need to solve the sense and avoid type of issues, just like in automotive industry. But you know, in the aerospace, uh, there's still struggle of what does sense and avoid mean. The regulators are struggling to say, okay, you know, what does the pilot see? How do we define what a pilot vision is, right? A lot of times machines are better than pilots in seeing objects because we have radars and things like that. But you know, they're even struggling to write the regulation to regulate these things in the commercial world, that those things are going to take, take years. And when it comes to flying taxis, the biggest impediment is the ever everybody's going electric. And electric just simply currently for airline applications, for air applications, does not have enough energy right now to provide meaningful flights. Like they can stay in the air for about 20 minutes. So for those short hops. You can do it, but you only have about 20 minutes of runtime with large electrical engines. You know, with cars, it's different because you don't care so much about the weight of the batteries, but in planes, you do. And so that is another impediment to air transport. So we are seeing the emergence of hybrid engines. So another job of the future are people who are good with hydrogen, you know, for example, as a source of fuel for engines or other sources of fuel, you know, new types of silicons for engines and, 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 and other things like that. These aircraft still need to have redundancy, which is going to make them very expensive, more expensive than cars. They still need to fit into regulatory environment and they need to have a good source of uh, fuel that is going to make these things more reliable than just, you know, reciprocating engine. Otherwise, we're back to just regular planes. Uh, and so, you know, it's exciting and cool, but there's just still so many problems to solve. And one of the bigger problems is also the cost of these things. You know, the airplanes cost so much for a reason because they have sometimes 10 to the, you know, minus nine degree of, um, of, of safety and, and redundant, all this redundancy to make it safe in the air. By the time you put all of that on an aircraft, even if it's a flying taxi, you know, how much is it going to cost and how do we make that all that technology cheaper through automation? It's amazing I, I, to hear how things are converging and evolving so quickly with the technology. And thanks for asking that question, Sandhya. But I'm afraid we, we have to stop with the questions at the moment. Sally, we didn't get to your questions, but maybe Asina is willing to just in her final remarks address this especially Sally's, well, let me let me just ask it, pose it. Sally's question I think is especially interesting because 
of your emphasis on getting out and volunteering essentially for for jobs, right? To to be yes. of to stretch yourself and to cut across industries. But then how do you also remain focused on a path and and yeah. sure that you use your time wisely? Maybe you can end your your remarks with just a comment about that. It's a very great question because I think different paths are for different people. I kind of saw the question and I chuckled a little bit because, you know, it's me. I like differences. I like to do, you know, I like to wake up and do a different thing every day. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not really drifting to do many things. If you think it is kind of, you know, certain types of skills that you have that allows you to, especially in business schools. I mean, business school is all about teaching you about different ways to solve problems. That's how I envision my business schools. It's like putting common knowledge in a framework that can be, you know, digested into smaller pieces and solved in a kind of a little more structured way. And then you have different tools to help you, you know, solve that problem. So for me, it's not a drift when I'm feeling like, okay, I'm solving a problem. I don't care what kind of problem I'm solving, as long as it makes the life a better world, a better place. I do like to improve things in the world, you know, and I do like adventure and I do like those things. So, so it's certainly not for everybody. I, I have high respect for people who would go very, very deep with, you know, PhDs and they go and become really, really masterful and and very deep in their area. Those are just as important skills to have in, in, in that industry. I'm just, you know, and for example, a lot of European education, what I'm finding out, you know, some of the universities like Oxford and, and Cambridge, they go, you know, much deeper. The United States University goes a little bit broader. And so I think there's a little bit of also cultural differences there. My only concern is, you know, when you go very, very deep in one area, you have to stay so focused in your field and you have to stay, you know, it's, it's a different, it's a different approach. One that I haven't taken, but it, it, it seems like, you know, to me, you have to constantly renew in that area and things are moving so fast and industries are becoming so obsolete that it does about become a little bit harder to, to kind of move around and find jobs and, and, but, you know, once you find that job and you're where you are, you kind of tend to stay and you're very, very happy there. And I, and I think that's a great path as well. So for different people, different paths, right? Yeah, I like that different. Uh, somebody, uh, Sir Ken Robinson, I once heard say something like it, it's, you don't start by building your resume and then going uh, to do all the things that you've written down. You build it as you go. And sometimes yeah. these pathways may take you in different places, but we actually do have to stop now. This is such fun that I, I it's always hard to, to, to stop, but you've been great, Asina and Grace. What a magnificent conversation and contribution, our second session in the series of jobs that don't yet exist. Thanks to Dan, Grace, and Essina for that fascinating conversation. Be sure to keep your eye on gbsn.org for further details on the next session in this series, where GBSN and Corn Ferry will be joined by the Center for Finance, Technology, and Entrepreneurship to dig into the world's first fintech job report, taking a look at potential job roles and relevant employability skills needed to aid with future job creation. That's next time as we continue exploring the jobs that don't yet exist.
an innovation series by GBSN and Corn Ferry. That's it for now. Until next time, take care.